Now, if you had been here in this church exactly five years ago, in this seat you're in, you would have been in church a day early because it was a Saturday. But if you'd been here the next day, you would have heard a sermon on the same passage as today and given by the same person as today. I don't apologise for the fact that most of what I'm going to say today is a repeat of that sermon five years ago. In fact, the importance of reading and rereading the Bible is a key lesson from this Bible passage, so I hope it speaks to you today, even if you heard it all before. Before I start, let's, have a, let's say a prayer. Lord God, we pray this morning that by your Spirit you would open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. So today's passage is Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, and it's on page 1050 in the Church Bibles. Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. A number of years ago, we had a wood-burning stove installed in our sitting room. It came with all the equipment we needed to get started, including a manual, gloves, fire lighters and tools. I had a quick read of the manual, but I'd been lighting fires since I was a boy, so I knew what I was doing. After a bit of practice, I got reasonably good at lighting the stove and getting a fire going, but for the first couple of years, that wasn't really working as well as I'd hoped. I was either having trouble getting a good blaze going, or... The fire was roaring away, getting through a lot of wood, uh, and sending most of the heat up the chimney. Then one day, I was tidying my study, and I came across the manual for the stove, so I decided to read it again. This time I actually looked at the details to see how to set the vents to get the best burn. After that, I seemed to have much more success with the stove, burning less wood and getting much more heat into the room. To my surprise, it turned out that the people writing in the manual knew what they were talking about. 
This morning we're continuing a short series of talks looking at the parables that Jesus told. But before we dive into this one, I'd like to look at a couple of general features of these parables. Firstly, the parables are usually told to, to make a single point, to highlight one particular truth. Jesus uses familiar situations and themes to teach us a key truth about the gospel. This means it's dangerous to take these parables too literally, or to try to read a lot of significance into the details of the situation. It's easy to miss the main point of the parable and fall into various bear traps or end up chasing down a blind alley. Secondly, it's important to look at the context of a parable. Who was listening to the parable and who was it aimed at? What happened afterwards? Uh, and what happened before the parable was told and what happened afterwards? What was people's reaction to it? By looking at this context, we can get a better idea of what is the key truth that Jesus is teaching us. This particular parable is also a story told to make a point, though in this case the setting is not one it's hearers would have been familiar with. The context of this parable is key. Jesus has been talking about wealth and money, about trustworthiness, and about the enduring nature of what is written in the law and the prophets. These are all themes that are addressed in this passage that we are studying this morning. There are certainly plenty of blind alleys to go down and bear traps to fall into. For example, this passage is not about the need to control stray dogs, or the health, health impact of poverty, or even the need to care for the most vulnerable in society. That's not to say Christians shouldn't be concerned about these things, but that's not the main point of this parable. But this parable is different from other parables in a couple of important ways. Firstly, the parable appears to be based on existing tales and folk stories that were around at the time in Israel and the surrounding area. Stories about what happens to the rich and poor after they died. Jesus was taking a familiar and a well-known story, but as we shall see, adding a twist at the end. This is also the only parable where one of the protagonists is named. Usually the stories are about a woman, a shepherd, some men, a servant. But in this case, one of the characters is given a name, and it turns out to be a very significant name. So this parable is similar to, but different from others, and we're going to look at the passage under four headings. We'll first look at the two individuals at the centre of this story, and then we will see that these two individuals had two different destinies, two very different destinations at the end of their lives. Then we will see that there's one guide who can teach us what our own destiny will be, and one saviour who is able to take us where we want to go. So two individuals with two destinies, one guide leading to one saviour. So first we'll look at the two individuals, and they are in verses 19 to 21. It would be great if you could look at those verses with me. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. We learn a lot about the rich man from these verses and also from his behaviour in the rest of the story. Above all, this man is rich with a capital R. He lives in a gated community with everything he needs. He's vain, wearing the best clothes and doubtless keeping up with the best fashions. He's selfish, holding on to his wealth and living in luxury. He's arrogant 
thinking he is more important than other people and expecting others to do what he wants. He is also completely lacking in compassion. He saw the beggar at his gates every day, but did nothing to help him. The second individual is poor, with a capital P. He's hungry, he's wretched, and he's in very poor health. He is a social and religious outcast. Dogs were considered unclean animals, so no religious person would go near a man like this, and he would certainly be excluded from temporal rituals or any other social activities. And he's desperate. He has no hope for the future. His dreams are limited to eating the scraps that fall from the floor. Crusts used to clean plates and then discarded. He is silent and passive. He does nothing and says nothing throughout the whole parable. I said before that Lazarus, Lazarus is the only person with a name in a parable, and his name says it all. It means, God is my help. For this man, that is the only help he will ever get. Or as it says in the first verses of Psalm 16, which Val read for us. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Apart from you, I have no good thing. So, who did Jesus have in mind when he told this story? Well, if we look back to verses 13 and 14, we can get a good idea of the target audience for this parable. So if you look back a few pages to a a few lines. So starting at 13... No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. This parable is aimed fairly and squarely at the rich religious people at the top of society at the time. Today, you and I live in more luxury than the rich man could ever imagine. And the shocking inequality described in these verses is just as visible in our country and our world today. It's clear which character in the story we should most identify with. So we've seen two very different individuals at the heart of this story. And now we move to look on to their two destinies. This is in verses 22 to 26, so please do look at that with me. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abram, have pity pity on me and send Lazarus to to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this far. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The time came. The time came as it does for all of us. The rich man goes to Hades, and Lazarus goes to be with Abraham. The rich man carries on as he had in life. He's self-pitying and arrogant. He's still giving out orders, treating Lazarus as a servant who will meet his needs, and treating Abraham as his messenger. He calls him Father Abraham. That sounds more like flattery than any real deference towards the most important man in the Old Testament. There's a detail here that I didn't notice until it was pointed out to me. 
The rich man asks for Lazarus by name. He knew Lazarus's name. Not only did he pass by him every day as he came and went through his gates, but he even knew his name. He knew who he was. This is just another indication of how arrogant, uncaring the rich man was, and indeed still is. He had no pity for Lazarus, but still asked Abraham to have pity on him. Abraham's response in verse, stark, in verse 25 is stark. Remember, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. In the traditional version of this story, this would be easy to interpret. The rich man is being punished for his wealth, the poor man is being rewarded for his poverty. This is just some kind of celestial karma. If you have bad things in life, you'll have good things in heaven, and vice versa. This is very much Karl Marx's idea of religion being the opium of the masses, a way to keep people in their place with the promise of future wealth and happiness. But we know that the rich man is a thoroughly unpleasant person, who clearly deserves to be where he is because of his behaviour, however much money he may have. And the name of the poor man, Lazarus, is a clear indication that he is with Abraham because God has helped him, not because he deserved it, whatever he'd been through in life. Being poor does not guarantee a place in heaven, and being rich does not always prevent it, which is a good thing for all of us. Abraham's point is actually much simpler. Injustice is injustice, whoever it affects. The rich man is quick to complain when he feels he had been treated unjustly, but did nothing about the injustice done to Lazarus. He did nothing to regret the injustice that worked in his favour, so he had no right to ask Abraham to correct the injustice that had been done to him. The rich man was just like us. We care more about the injustice done to us and less about injustice done to others. Unlike him, we are particularly blind to the injustice that we ourselves do to others. But if we don't address the injustice that benefits us at the expense of others, then we have no right to complain about injustice that benefits others at our expense. We should perhaps be most vocal about the injustice that benefits us and complain less when it's the other way around. So it's clear that the rich man is where he is now because of sin, not karma. As we saw in verse 13, you cannot serve both God and money, and the rich man very clearly serves money. Likewise, Lazarus didn't do anything. He's passive, as we saw earlier. So it is clear that he is where he is now because of grace, not karma. He's there because God loves him, not because he's poor. The next verse, 26, is even more devastating. It starts with a dismissive, and besides. This is Abraham speaking. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham is effectively saying, I couldn't help, even if I wanted to. There is a chasm between the two. Two sides no bridge and it's a chasm that opens on death so at this point I was going to uh, do a visual aid and some audience participation well see what I was going to get you to do is to get a coin out of your pocket but unfortunately I suspect most of you don't have coins in your pockets anymore um, so I, I brought one so I'm going to toss this coin how many people think it's going to turn up heads put your hand up if you think it's going to turn up heads put your hand up if you think it's going to turn up tails Put your hand up if you think it's going to turn up something else. 
Sorry, Simon. Heads, as it turns out. The point is that there are only two ways that that coin can land. Likewise, there are only two outcomes after death, only two destinies. This is a central theme of Jesus' teaching, and he used many, many illustrations of it. He talks about the broad way or the narrow way, building on sand, building on rock, being lost, being found being sheep, being goats, being at the banquet or being left outside, being either for Jesus or against Jesus. In all these ways, Jesus points out that there is a simple binary choice and it is a choice between two very different destinies. This teaching was unpopular at the time and it remains unpopular today. People prefer other, less judgmental views of our eternal destiny. One popular view is that everyone has the same destiny. Everyone goes to heaven, or lives on as a spirit, or is reborn, or um, reincarnated, or just rots. Sadly, this idea is prevalent even in the Christian tradition, with funeral services that talk much of the certain hope of resurrection, but little of the need for repentance that is behind that promise. The contrasting view is that there are many different destinations. All faiths lead to God in some way, or there are different levels of enlightenment, or different destinies depending on how good we are. This too is slightly, is quite prevalent in Christian tradition, with much emphasis on continuing improvement and growing as a disciple, but no mention of the need for a life-changing decision to go God's way rather than our own. If we are to stay true to Jesus' teaching, we have to reject these ideas and accept the reality of the two possible destinies and the chasm between them. So we've seen two very different individuals, two very different destinies. Now we will see that there's only one guide that will show us what affects our destiny. See, so far this parable could be mistaken for a simple morality tale about rich, poor or a confirmation of Marx's idea of the opium of the masses. But now the parable goes in an unexpected direction, and Jesus adds the twist that makes this a very different story. This is in verses 27 and 28. Uh, This is the rich man speaking. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man is still up to his old tricks. He's still giving orders, still treating Lazarus as a servant, still thinking of only himself and his family. But he has at least realised that his situation is is the result of his own actions. He's realised that he should have done something about it earlier, if only to avoid this punishment. So he asks Abraham, Abraham to warn his brothers so they can avoid his fate. Verse 29, Abraham gives another stark response to the rich man. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He basically says, they already know what they're supposed to do. It's written in the Bible. And the context of this parable makes it clear that this is the main point of the parable. Verse 17, just two verses before this parable, says... It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. 
In this parable, Jesus is saying that the teaching of the Bible is enough to show us how we should live and to warn us what will happen if we ignore God's commandments. It's like the wood-burning stove. I had the manual. I'd even read the manual, but I just didn't do what it said. No excuse. So what does this mean for us? Well, firstly, it means there's no need for anything beyond the Bible. No need for another prophet or another testament. The Bible is enough. And there's no need for any special experience or revelation to lead us to God. The Bible is enough. A close friend of mine was exploring Christianity, so he started reading the Bible from the beginning. When he got to Romans, he gave his life to Jesus. Now, there were obviously other Christians helping him, but in the end, the Bible was enough to convince him. If you are still considering Christianity, then this passage says that you have the information you need to decide about Jesus. There is no need to look elsewhere for more proof or to delay a decision in the hope that there will be new information. The Bible is enough. For those who have already trusted in Jesus, this is an encouragement to read our Bibles. We will only get benefit from the Bible if we read it. We need to get into the habit of looking at it regularly, preferably every day. And when we have questions about our faith or our life, we need to look at the Bible for the answers rather than using our own ideas or the latest trendy theories. The Bible should be the standard against which we judge the ideas that the world constantly throws at us, rather than the other way around. The Bible is often judged against current cultural standards. But as Christians, we should rather judge our current culture by the standards of the Bible. Think about the predominant issues affecting our denomination today. Are they reflections of God's priorities in the Bible, or are they more driven by our current cultural standards? Is the debate driven by a desire to be faithful to what God has written, or is it driven by external pressure from those who take their values and standards from elsewhere? As well as reading the Bible, we also need to live it. It's clear from these verses that the rich man and his brothers knew what Moses and the prophets had said, and they just didn't take any notice. Simply knowing what the Bible says isn't enough. We need to put it into practice. It's like me and the wood burner. I'd read the manual. I just didn't do what it told me to do because I was too arrogant and I thought I knew better. So we've seen two very different individuals with two very different destinies. And we've seen that the Bible is the one guide we need to show us which path to take. But the last two verses tell us how to get there. They point us to one saviour who is in control of our destiny. So let's look at verses 30 and 31. Again, this is the rich man. No father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Yet again, the rich man's up to his usual behavior. He contradicts Abraham and tries to tell him what to do and how the world works. And yet again, Abraham tells him in stark terms that he's wrong. The truth is that the brothers wouldn't listen. If they didn't listen before, they won't listen now. To put it more plainly, people who won't listen, won't listen. The Bible contains enough evidence to show us what we are really like and to lead us to repentance. Sadly, some people have made up their minds and are blind to any evidence or arguments that would make them reconsider. However, this is not an excuse to write people off or to stop telling them about Jesus. It may be that the people we talk to will never accept Jesus, but we'll never know that. Rather, this parable 
is an encouragement to trust the Bible as a powerful tool to help others. Not to doubt it, just because some people don't accept what it says is true. To those who first heard this parable, these verses might have appeared to be just more evidence of the importance of Moses and the law. But we live on the other side of the cross, so we have a very different perspective. This is not just a parable, it's a prophecy. If the Pharisees really knew their Bible, they would have remembered this from Psalm 16 we heard earlier. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Jesus did go to the dead after he died on the cross. Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus did tell his disciples, and through them he told us. And Jesus alone can keep us on his side of the chasm. So the message of the parable is this. If you are trusting God through the Bible, then you have all you need. So we've seen two very different men who had two very different destinies. One lived a selfish life dominated by his own needs and pleasures and ignoring the needs of others. He refused to listen to what God had said through Moses and the law and he would not repent of his behaviour. He ended up separated from God by a chasm that cannot be crossed. The other man was an outcast in society, rejected by men, but as his name suggests, helped by God. He ended up on the other side of that chasm. And we now know that this is only possible because of Jesus, who died and rose again. In this parable, Jesus calls us to read the Bible and take it seriously, to listen to the warnings and repent of our behaviour. Only then we will be right with God and end up on the right side of the chasm. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for teaching us through your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to continue to read your word and listen to what it says. Please help us to heed your warnings. Help us to do what is right, to live for others and not just ourselves. And help us to repent of the times when we fail to live up to your standards. Please help us to understand your offer of free and full forgiveness. Give us the humility to accept it for ourselves and the courage to tell other people about it. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who died and rose again. Amen.